Country Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, October 21st, and we're pitching a few 10x healthcare stocks. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I am joined by Fool.com's Brian Feroldi. Brian, I know that you had some elaborate name for me here, but admittedly, I was switching tabs between our outline as I was reading the intro, and unfortunately, I didn't get it in time. I'll do it now, though, just just to humor you, because I know you put some time into this. Fool.com's timely tracer of tremendous trailing 10x talent, Brian Feroldi. There we go. Okay, Dylan, I was a little concerned for a couple of seconds there that we're all of a sudden working off of different documents. Yes, I put a lot of time into those titles. Still haven't tripped you up. Got more work to do. You got me last week as we were wrapping up because I got cocky and I did it twice. This time, though, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to try to hit it again at the end of the show, particularly because I think you threw eight T's into that one, and uh, I don't think I can hit that one twice. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've noticed that you are slowing down even more so in the intro than usual because I've I've, I've damaged your brain, apparently, to make you want to go extremely slow when we start. (laughs) It's a fun game and a fun way to kick things off. It's kind of a nice little uh, broadcaster exercise, and it means if I can get through that, we can get through the whole show. Hopefully, didn't just jinx us. Um, Brian, you are on today because we are talking in our wildcard episode about 10x stocks, specifically healthcare stocks. You're one of my favorite people to talk about 10x stocks with. You're one of my favorite people to talk about healthcare stocks with. Only made sense for you to be on today's show. Yeah, this is a topic that I absolutely love. Healthcare is a great place to go looking for these stocks because innovations come along all the time that just did not exist before and have tremendous potential uh, to change the face of healthcare. And companies that can do that successfully definitely have the potential to provide 10x results for investors. So this uh, sector, just like the technology sector, I think is packed with companies that have 10x potential. Before we get into some of the signs of a 10x stock, I think it's kind of worth double-clicking on that industry profile for a second, because a huge part of the healthcare industry is what could happen. And we see it in in the hardware space, we see it in the biotech space in particular, where um, if certain things come to fruition, the story for a business gets really big, really fast. But you kind of have to discount probabilities. And so you wind up with these small businesses that could become massive businesses if things go right. Yeah, it's very common for, say, smaller companies, and let's just call smaller companies uh, those below a billion dollars, to raise a lot of funding uh, from investors as they develop their their product. It takes a long time to develop these innovative technologies, let alone bring them to market. So it's common for companies to come public when they are still, you know, in the five hundred million dollars or less range. Some of these companies are pre-revenue. And boy, can that be risky to invest in. However, it does give us as investors the chance to get in uh, in in the first inning. And if the technology proves itself out, the percentage returns for investors can be spectacular. Yeah, the upside and downside is a little bit different in this industry, particularly with the biotech stocks, but also with, I think, some some health and medtech companies as well. Um, They are probably a little bit closer to 
the binary outcomes um, that you'll see in some spaces. And and that's really not something that's super familiar to people that are normally investing in consumer goods or retail. You know, if, if Chipotle is a bad quarter, they're still selling some burritos. Uh, if, if a drug doesn't get approved, you're not really making any money on that drug or that therapy. <laughs> yeah, that is a big risk. That's why when I when I typically invest in these companies, it's after they've been significantly de-risked, after they've gotten FDA approval and set up uh, in insurance and getting some healthcare providers on more. I normally like to see some traction in the marketplace before I'm willing to put my capital behind it. I do make exceptions, and one of the companies that we're going to talk about today is still pre-revenue with their product, um, but if you can invest at that point, and you're right, the gains can be huge. And I think that's the right way to go. You know, you're you're reducing your upside a little bit with that, but you're also dramatically increasing your certainty. And you know, everyone has their own risk-adjusted comfort level with those kinds of things. But you got to be able to sleep at night with the stocks that you're buying. Totally. And there's no reason that you can't invest in uh, risky companies too. If you are a low-risk investor, but you still want a little bit of skin in the game of these companies, I see nothing wrong with taking a tiny piece of your portfolio and putting it into these companies, especially if you're willing to diversify and buy 5, 10, or even 20 of them. Just knowing full well in the beginning, a lot of these are going to flame out and go against you. But if you're right on just one or two of them, it'll carry the entire portfolio forward. Let's talk a little bit about some of the characteristics for a typical 10x business. We've we've done this, I think, with a tech lens before, um, and a lot of the rules are going to be kind of the same here, but it's worth reemphasizing them. So mostly when I think about 10x stocks, I think small. I, I generally screen for companies that are below a $5 billion market cap. At that size, the company can 10x and still be below $50 billion. $50 billion is a really big company, but if a technology comes along and it's successful, it can get there. So that's my first screen is just the market cap of the company. I also want to see that the company is doing something special, especially in, in healthcare. It's not hard to find companies that are taking an innovative approach uh, to, to the market. So I want to see something that either improves greatly upon what's already existing or is inventing a whole new market for itself. The other thing we look for is huge revenue growth. If there's no established history, we have to believe that revenue growth can grow at, say, 20 or 30% for at least the next five plus years. To do that, they have to have a massive untapped market opportunity ahead of them, and they can't, uh, they can't have already captured too big a percentage of that. Uh, finally, I like to look for operating leverage ahead of the company. Operating leverage is just a fancy word, way of saying, as the business scales, profits can grow faster than revenue. If the company isn't profitable, <laughs> operating leverage is, is ahead of you. But I like to look for that because if a business is already fully at scaled, its profits will only grow as fast as, it reven as revenue. And I want to see profits grow faster. Yeah, that's generally what we're looking for here, right, Brian? <laughs> um, and, and I think what what a lot of those elements highlight is um, a business that maybe isn't being fully realized with its valuation or has a very large valuation it could grow into. And and very often when we hear value investing, we tend to think of, you know, the cigar butt style of looking at low PE stocks and trying to see what value can be eked out of those businesses. But I think there's a really good case to be made that you can look at value investing as taking companies whose full 
present value and and certainly their future value is not being fully realized by the market. Um, we aren't able to really think about how dynamic they are, how innovative they are, how big the market could be, and how many adjacent markets they might have with some of their products. And a lot of the things that you laid out there touch on those types of business strengths. I always like to think that my biggest edge and our biggest edge as investors is just the willingness and ability to buy and hold for a long period of time. The market is a discounting machine, always looking forward. Typically, the typical Wall Street trader is looking forward at most a year. With some of these companies, the theses that I love best are this thing that already exists and is already working is just going to be much bigger in 10 years. If that's true, I'm perfectly comfortable paying $2 today for $1 in value, so long as that $2 grows into $10 in the next, say, 10 years. We have that luxury because we can be patient. So value investors like to look for something that's worth a dollar today and only pay 70 cents. There's different styles. No, no style is right for everybody. All right, Brian, with all of that, why don't we talk about the three stocks we're going to be discussing today? Uh, the first one is one that is probably familiar to folks that have been watching uh, Motley Fool Live, our, our members only live stream, and that is True Panion, uh, ticker TRUP. I'm guessing Emily Flippin has also probably talked about this on the, uh, the Tuesday show because she has been following the pets trend for a while. But uh, you want to give a quick rundown on what this business does? I think most people are familiar or at least heard the name True Panion before, especially if you are a pet owner. This is a leader in the pet insurance market. Anyone with a pet knows that you take them to the vet regularly, and occasionally you get a huge bill thrown your way. I mean, I have plenty of friends that have dogs or cats that have cancer or diabetes or they eat something they shouldn't have. Uh, we used to have a dog, and my dog swallowed a, a sock and had to be surgically removed from, from the stomach. That was a surprise $600 bill. That wasn't that bad <laughs> compared to other bills that come your way. True Panion's business model is to, it's, it's an insurance company. They collect premiums from their owners, uh, from dog and cat owners, and they cost about, say, $20 to $60 per month, depending on the level of coverage. And it protects you from having a huge, uh, huge surprise uh, vet bill. So, you are trading a subscription revenue fee, essentially, for lowering your risk down the road that you're going to have some massive uh, uh, bill. They have been extremely successful with uh, with capturing pet owners uh, to date, and the company's revenue has been consistently growing up and to the right. They have a wonderful chart on their investor presentation that just shows every single quarter they add new pets to their platform and grow consistently. No surprise, this has also been a home run stock for investors. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that a lot of people have started putting this one on their watch list because so many pets have been adopted. So many families have gotten pets during the pandemic as people have been staying at home. I have, I think, four or five friends at this point that, that have adopted dogs. And in talking with them all, uh, yeah, I grew up with dogs. Yeah, one of the first things they say is, we didn't we didn't get ready for all the vet visits. We didn't we didn't get ready for all of the, you know, crazy things that dogs do because they're dogs. Um my mom has a has a story about how um one of our dogs decided to eat an avocado pit, which you know, she didn't see happen, and all of a sudden that became the $500 avocado because <laughs> there was nothing wrong with the dog but still had to go through the vet and and go through and get imaging done and all that kind of stuff. Um so, you know, you can't anticipate these kinds of things, especially with animals. And what's fascinating about this space 
space. What's fascinating about this business is how early on we are, really, in the United States in particular, with the penetration of pet insurance. Because for, for all the benefits it may seem to offer, um, it's not really something that a lot of people have. It's really not. Uh, it's very similar to almost the way our true panel likes to say it's very similar to the way that dental insurance used to work. People didn't used to have dental insurance. They would just show up to the dentist. Gradually over time, they became insured, and that helped to kind of take the bite out of really big surprise bills. They hope that the pet insurance market is going to be going the same way. If you just look at penetration rates, the, the reason that I think this stock can 10x uh, potentially in time is that in the United States, only about 1% of pets are covered by pet insurance. Now, if we didn't have another market to compare it to, you would think, well, that's going to be stuck there forever. However, if you look at Sweden, 40% of pet owners have insurance for their pet. In the UK, it's 25%. In Norway, it's 14%. Those markets can't be all that different from the US. So if companies like Trupanion, and Trupanion is the market leader here, can eventually grow that penetration rate anywhere close to those foreign markets, this company has massive upside potential. I think one of the reasons that Trupanion probably is a market leader here is they've taken a very simplistic approach to pet insurance. You know, if, if you are a new pet owner, that doesn't matter what insurance you're looking at. Insurance is complicated, whether it's home insurance, whether it's medical insurance, um, you're immediately hit with a bunch of terms that you probably don't know, you probably don't understand. Trupanion is really trying to make their coverage and their plans as simple as possible, which I imagine is very appealing to new pet owners. Yes. That is one of the things that, that they tout is there's no one size fit all. They will write a policy based on your specific budgetary needs. You can go on there and say that I want 50% of my vet bills covered for the life of my pet and probably pay some bill that's $20 a month or, or $30 a month. That increases from there all the way up to people that say, I don't want any surprise vet bills and Trupanion pays 100% of the costs. That is more of along the lines of $50, 60 or even $70 per month or up from there, depending on the health of the pet and, and the age and, and those kind of factors. But again, taking a surprise huge bill down the road and turning it into a monthly recurring predictable payment is something that's very attractive to a lot of people. Very attractive and with low penetration rates, a huge opportunity. I think what's kind of nice about this business is um, while there's a compelling growth story, and we've talked about that a little bit, the financials in and of themselves don't look too bad right now. You know, it's it's you're not you're not betting the farm on what this business could become. It's a business that's already in decent shape as is. Yeah, revenue has grown uh, between twenty and thirty percent for the last ten years uh, since this company offered its products uh, to, to the market. More recently, it started generating free cash flow, and it's very close to achieving uh, just a non-gap uh, profitability. Its balance sheet is packed with cash, very little debt, and it has very low churn rate. Uh, its monthly churn rate is about 1% to 1.5%. In some markets, the company naturally gets more um, more referrals than actually its churn, churn, churn rate, and the company is trying to increase that o over time. So recurring revenue, business, uh, generating cash flow, huge opportunity ahead. There's a reason I picked this stock first, Dylan. <laughs> Are we going in descending order? Is that what's happening here, Brian? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to start off with what I think is the lowest risk business of the three. I mean, this company has been operating for such a long time. It is the market leader. To me, the biggest risks here is that 
the penetration rate stays where it is. And for whatever reason, uh, North American consumers reject the whole idea of, of pet insurance. If that happens and, and, and the penetration rate gets stuck at 1%, this is going to be a, a terrible investment. However, I think that the odds of that going higher are very high because people clearly love their pets and people clearly do not like huge surprise bills. It's just a matter of time, I think, that that penetration rate is going to go higher. Yeah, and and this is not the only business that is benefiting from. You can call it a couple of different things: the personification of pets, the humanification of pets. Uh, I mentioned before, Emily has talked about this plenty on the Tuesday show, but we are seeing higher levels of pet ownership, and we're seeing people spend more money on pets. That's the thesis with a company like Chewy, which has has done very well during the pandemic. Um, and I imagine that with that spending is going to become the awareness that you know there are probably ways to spend a little bit less on on healthcare and and provide some protection. I think a lot of people are going to be very happy about that, particularly some of the newer pet owners, uh, maybe more of that millennial market, um, a little bit more web savvy and people that are looking for protection and not having to you know, pay a huge vet bill. And let's not forget, pet insurance benefits the veterinarians too. Uh, if 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 uh, a customer has insurance, it's a lot easier for them to sell the idea of having a surgery or paying for some medication. Uh, people are much more willing to consume things when they know that at least a big part of the cost is covered by insurance. By contrast, today, I'm sure there are lots of procedures that are recommended to people and people just say no because they don't want to get that huge bill. So I could also see this being attractive to consumers and uh, the vets themselves. Do you see any risk here with some of the bigger players, more established players in traditional insurance spaces hopping in here and trying to get a piece of this pie if we start seeing that, you know, three, four, ten percent of uh, pet owners wind up with insurance? That I think is a risk. They point out that since day one, they've been competing against 20 other insurance companies and Trupanion's advantage is that it is the brand leader. The other thing that this business has done to protect itself that I really like, it is that it's, it's, it's built its software directly integrated into vet offices themselves. That allows claims to be processed in seconds. Uh, a vet a vet can uh, submit a claim and have the money in their account literally within a couple of seconds, which makes the reimbursement process uh, painless. Other insurance companies, uh, the the uh, the pet owner pays the bill up front and then later submits for reimbursement, which adds friction. And you can also say that Trupanion has the brand name. It is the number one market share leader by far, as well as the data to price uh, its policies more accurately. I do think there are some competitive advantages at play here, but to me, the number one risk definitely is competition. I imagine we should also probably touch on valuation here because given that there are some big growth expectations priced into this business, um, it is uh, a relatively highly valued insurance business. Yes, currently trading at about 23 times book value. That is a traditional metric that you can use for insurance companies, although this isn't exactly a pure play insurance company, nor is it a pure play tech company. Uh, so 23 times book value, trading at about seven and a half times sales. If that's all you knew and you're used to investing in SaaS stocks, you're like, wow, this thing is incredibly cheap. However, the margins profile for this company are dramatically different than they are for a company like, say, uh, Datadog. So not a perfect metric. I don't think there really is a great metric for judging value of this company uh, right now. Every metric has something wrong with it, other than to say 
if the company is successful and can continue growing at a 20 to 30% rate for the next 10 years, the business will be bigger in time. <laughs> and for folks that really want to spend more time understanding the way the insurance industry works and, and some of the specific metrics there, highly recommend checking out some of the work from Matt Frankel. Um, he and Jason Moser talk about insurance companies a lot on the Monday show, but Matt also does a lot of writing for fool.com and has done a lot of primers on that space. And so uh, just definitely someone, if, if this is interesting to you and we just threw a lot of words out there that you don't know, that's a great place to start. Um, Brian, anything else on True Panion before we switch to stock number two? Now, this is a business that uh, that really interests me, and I'm glad we I'm glad we dug into it a little more. It's a fascinating company. Are you a shareholder? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> the intrigue. Um, all right. Our, our stock number two is Dermtech, and this is ticker DMTK. True Panion was a $3 billion company. This one's a bit smaller, Brian. A bit smaller is one way of putting it, Dylan. <laughs> yeah, Dermtech. Uh, this is a $230 million market cap company. And the size difference is really seen by the risk uh, profile here. I would say that True Panion is a lower risk 10-bagger potential. This one is as high risk as it gets. So Dermtech is focused on non-invasive skin disease diagnostics, uh, particularly uh, skin cancer. So I think most listeners know the key to fighting cancer is detecting it early. With skin cancer, uh, the survival rate, the five-year survival rate for people that are diagnosed with skin cancer is about 98% when it's caught in its earliest stage. That drops to 23% when it's in its advanced stage. So early diagnosis is key. Now, the current standard of care for diagnosing skin cancer is to take a biopsy. So a surgical a biopsy of the, 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 the lesion is chopped and then sent off to a lab uh, for diagnosis. As you can imagine, that's a pretty invasive thing if you've ever had that done. Uh, not to mention that only about 1% of the lesion is actually checked, and it's done via um, by 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 an expert looking at it. There's some other diagnosis, but there are big problems with this. It's it's low accuracy, uh, it's expensive, but the big the big thing for patients is it leaves them a scar. Dermtech is pioneering a brand new way to do that. Picture a small circle that's clear, kind of like a band aid. The idea is you take this band aid. You put it on top of the lesion, and the, it picks up RNA and DNA from the entire lesion. That's then peeled off and then sent off to Dermtech's lab, who then does genetic analysis on it. That's far more accurate than the current standard of care. And then a report is sent off to the doctor within a couple of days. The big benefit for the patients here is no scarring, completely non-invasive. This technology was just recently approved, and they are literally launching this to market this quarter, hence why it's so high risk. But the potential here is huge. When I see the pitch for this business, Brian, I see it checking a lot of boxes for success in healthcare. You have generally a better patient experience using this product than the alternatives. You have um, better processing and you have lower costs. I think everyone along the value chain of using this product is probably happier that it's being used. Yeah, it, 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 as you said, it checks really all the boxes that could make this a blockbuster uh, diagnostic product when compared to the current standard of care. If I was a patient, and I've actually had lesions checked uh, myself, um, but it, rather than go through that process, I just said, just take it off. And I have scars on my back from, from moles that were taken out. By contrast, if I could go to the doctor and they put a little bandaid on me, take the bandaid off and then send it to the lab, and then I know for certain whether or not that could be cancerous or not, wow, is that attractive. 
And they say that by using uh, RNA and DNA and their technology, they greatly increase the accuracy rate. And the key thing that you highlighted, Dylan, is this is actually lower cost. Uh, the current cost of test per lesion is about $1,000 uh, by using the current standard care treatment. The cost for this test is going to be about $760. So still not dirt cheap, but a cost savings nonetheless. And when you combine that with the patient ease of use and the accuracy gains, I could see this technology really taking off. I think it's also important beyond just the individual cost of processing that test to think about all of the tack-on benefits and likely cost savings that come from making that kind of testing easier. You know, you talked about it before, but survival rates go up dramatically when patients get that testing. So just from a pure healthcare perspective and wellness perspective, that's going to be better. But also, if you have early detection, that might put you in a spot where you can go through uh, treatment that is far less costly. And that is something that is it's hard to capture with some of the numbers that we're throwing out there, but another major benefit if this winds up panning out. Yeah. And this company, uh, I think, rightly points out that a number of other diagnosis companies have followed this same playbook to success. One company that they point to is a company called Exact Sciences, which created a revolutionary way to diagnose uh, colon cancer. A little box is sent to your house with a product called Cologuard. You put a stool sample in there, you send it off to the lab, and you get a uh, accurate reading. Dermtech is essentially trying to do that exact same thing uh, with, with skincare. And importantly, they also recently got um, a commercial code from Medicare to reimburse for this technology. The fact that they got that so quickly uh, really says that Medicare is interested in getting this product to its patients. And it's for the exact reason that you said. Not only could they potentially diagnose these diseases uh, much earlier, but it's going to save them money off over the current cost of, uh, of care. That's really compelling. Brian, when, when I hear about different innovations in the healthcare space and companies that are investing in different treatments, different therapies, as someone who doesn't follow the space as closely, it's very easy for me to be like, well, that sounds awesome. I, I don't know if they can do it. Um, how do you suss out the contenders and the pretenders uh, when you're looking at these types of businesses? I allocate accordingly, Dylan. I mean, that is the strategy. Whenever you look at a company like this, especially their management presentation, it's easy to come away and say, wow, this just makes so much sense. However, when it comes to healthcare, the details really, really matter. It's possible that this technology might turn off um, uh, doctors that deal with uh, skin cancer for some reason that I can't uh, detect right now. If I was interested in investing in this technology, I would treat it the exact same way I treat a company like Nanox, which is I invest a little bit upfront and then I wait and I see what is the market reception to this? Is revenue growing substantially? Uh, is the company outperforming? Is the company turning this idea into revenue. That's the real thing that we want to see. And importantly, along the way, what's margins looking like? So I think this company has tremendous potential right now. But the way that I always say, is this for real? Is just to watch the financials. Yeah. And, and on the note of potential, I mean, there are certain therapies, treatments, conditions that immediately your brain goes, okay, that, that's going to be a big figure. You know, if it's anything related to cancer, if anything, if it's anything related to diabetes, you know that those are going to be big sticker figure markets. So just thinking about the potential of this business, um, knowing that this is something that is squarely focused on skin cancer, there's a pretty decent patient population that they could apply this technology to if it winds up being everything that we expect it to be. Yeah. 
they, they say that one out of every five Americans will develop some type of skin cancer at some point in their lives. There are millions of diagnoses every year and about 20,000 people uh, die from cancer. You add all that up and based on their current um, a- a- approvals, they believe that their opportunity in the U.S. is about $2.5 billion. I think that might be actually underselling the opportunity because I could very easily see a patient walking into a doctor's office and saying, maybe I should have this mole checked out, maybe I shouldn't, but I don't want to get, I don't want my skin to get cut to, to get a biopsy here. By comparison, if it's just, again, putting a Band-Aid on something, I could see the entire market for diagnosis grow substantially. The other thing that's exciting about this is they believe that it has at-home potential. So imagine that you're doing a telehealth visit with, uh, with, with somebody, and then this kit gets sent to your house. The doctor can walk you through how to put, use the kit uh, right over the phone, and you can mail it back right from the comfort of your own home. If they can get that product to work, I could really see that expanding the market. We talked before when we first introed this business about how it is a much smaller company than Trupanion. <laughs> and and I think that there are, you know, the risks that are just kind of boilerplate risks when you're investing in businesses of this size. Outside of the fact that this is a small company, there's still a lot to be proven. What else do you see as a risk for them? To me, that is the risk. I mean, right now, this is basically an idea. It sounds great on paper, but we don't yet have proof that there's product market fit. While we wait for that to happen, the company is burning through capital because it's in commercialization room right now. They are hiring sales reps, they're establishing reimbursement, they're hiring their lab, et cetera, et cetera. All those things cost money. How long is it going to take them to ramp up sales fast enough and margins fast enough to kind of offset that? Will investors get diluted along the way? We don't know the answers to a lot of these questions right now, hence why it's incredibly risky. To me, if the idea works, wow, is there a lot of upside. What are the chances of that? It's really hard to say at this point. We're going to stay in the small cap space for stock number three. Uh, Our third stock for this discussion is going to be Semler Scientific, and this is ticker SMLR. We probably need to make a specific note about the ticker and where this company trades before we even get into what they do. Yes, this company is not listed on any major exchanges. It trades over the counter, so it is extremely illiquid. Uh, Only a few thousand or maybe a few tens of thousands of shares trade every day. Just know that going into this, that this does not trade on a major exchange, which, uh, which raises the risk profile. And what exactly do they do, Brian? I've highlighted this company on the show before because I think this is a tremendously exciting uh, business. So Semler is focused on making diagnostics products for people that are at risk of developing a heart attack or a stroke. The product that they uh, launched in the last couple of years uh, helps to diagnose people with peripheral artery disease, PAD. And that's when uh, the, your arteries uh, in your uh, arms and legs narrow due to the progressive buildup of uh, fat. Uh, people that have PAD are much more likely to die of a heart attack or of a stroke. So diagnosing PAD uh, is really, really critical. However, If you have PAD, there's a 75% chance that you don't know it. Uh, The company estimates that about 12 million Americans have it, and about 75% of those cases are undiagnosed. And the reason is there's no symptoms. If you have this disease and your arteries are getting uh, narrow, there's no way for you to tell until you have a stroke. And the current standard of care to diagnosis is to use a blood pressure uh, cuff to measure uh, blood pressure, which takes up a lot of doctor time. It's, a, it's an expensive thing, and it has to be done by a vascular technician. 
Semler's innovation was to essentially create a small little clip that looks like an oxygen sensor, and it goes on your fingers uh, and, and your toes. And within five minutes, this, uh, this sensor quickly uh, measures the amount of blood that is flowing to your extremities. If it detects an anomaly, it produces a report that gets sent to the physician. And within five minutes, somebody that has never been, uh, that doesn't need to be trained on anything, you can quickly tell whether or not one of your patients has PAD. If you do, you can start to take action with drugs or even surgery to prevent heart attacks or strokes. Is the right way to think about this uh, basically counting cars on the highway? You know, <laughs> the, the kind of a simplification of the technology, basically just having sensors that are watching the flow and, and counting the flow? Yes, that, that's a great analogy you did there. So <laughs> blood pressure detects how much pressure there is. This is detecting flow, how much blood is actually getting to your extremities. And if there's some kind, if, if the flow is, um, is, is slowed, that would be a sign that PAD is actually happening. But the big thing here is that it makes something that's invisible, visible, and importantly, it does so fast and non-invasively. Those two things uh, have really helped this technology to take off. Yeah, we talked about the win-wins earlier and how that's a huge part of the healthcare market and really, really pushing adoption of some of these more innovative products. When you see that a test could take a third of the time, that's something that healthcare providers are going to be very happy about. Definitely. Now, the reason that I brought this company to attention again was because the technology itself is really interesting. And Semler is the only company that's uh, commercializing this kind of technology in this space. But what really attracts me about this company is the business model. They're not selling the clips. What they're selling is the software, the software that actually produces the report. So if I was a doctor's office that was interested in this technology, I would pay a recurring monthly fee uh, to, to Semler for unlimited tests, or I would pay a small fee each time a test is performed. Selling the software is a much better business than selling the hardware. So this is a company with 90% uh, gross margin. Incredible. For any of our usual Friday listeners that were worried that Brian was straying from his SaaS tendencies, <laughs> fear not. <laughs> he finds a way to work it in. That's right. Uh, SaaS plus healthcare, I mean, you got to love it, right? <laughs> and that bears out in the margins. I mean, this company looks way more like a software business than it does um, a hardware provider or someone who's you know, providing anything physical really to patients. Yeah, if you want something that's, I mean, really incredible about this company is it's already highly profitable. Now, these tests are performed in doctor's offices while a patient is there for a routine visit. As you can imagine, Q2, when everybody was at staying at home and avoiding the doctor, results for this company weren't great. Revenue fell 20% uh, last quarter over the prior year. Not exactly something you want to see from a growth company. However, even in their most challenging quarter, they still produced a gross margin of 90% and made a net income of $1 million. Considering that was the worst operating environment of all time, that shows you how strong this business is. Yeah. And, and another position of strength for them to look over at the balance sheet, $14 million in cash, no debt. That's the kind of thing that puts you in a spot where you can weather a 20% drop in revenue and continue operating just fine. Yep. And, and plus a 90% gross margin uh, <laughs> it, it helps to, to cover that too. But 
Yeah, the, the, this company is also in growth mode right now. It's very small. They've more this year. They've hired a lot of salespeople to really get the word out, and they believe that in the United States, that about three hundred thousand doctor offices are potential customers uh, of there. They don't disclose how many they have thus far, but. It's got to be in the low thousands at best. I mean, this is a company that's only doing um, about um, 40 or 50, uh, excuse me, $30 million uh, in revenue this year. If this technology uh, takes off, there's a lot of room for that number to grow. Is it 300,000 doctor's offices? 300,000 doctor's offices in the US, correct. Okay. And and the patient population is somewhere around 80 million. Is, is that what they were seeing? Yes, they believe that as many as 80 million Americans could be screen should be screened uh, using this technology each year. And again, if they're successful there, uh, that they you know about seven million people that that currently have uh, peripheral artery disease could start to take action to prevent future heart attacks or strokes. It's it's again it's it's investing a little bit of money up front to potentially save a lot of money uh, down the road. That plays right into the healthcare mega push towards health and wellness. So a lot of the risks for this business are going to be relatively similar to the one that we just talked about, just simply based on size, where they are in terms of getting the product into uh, user hands and and really collecting money for that. But there are also some kind of business specific risks here based on how they're currently set up. Given the company's size, it has landed a couple of very large customers. And so customer concentration is a huge issue here. I mean, its top three customers are almost two-thirds of revenue, and one customer alone is about half uh, of revenue. So if it was to lose that customer, it would be a major blow to the thesis. The good news is, while that is a big risk for investors to watch, these numbers should come down over time as Semware continues to grow and add more doctor's offices. Uh, but for now, I think that that customer concentration is the biggest risk that I'm watching. For folks that may follow you on Twitter, Brian, they, they might have seen this. You're, you're at Brian Froldy and you post a lot of really great content there. But you put up a graphic recently and it was looking at the size of a business and the importance of leadership team over time. And when a company is this small, the leadership team is far more important. Definitely. Uh, In the early stages of a business, the leadership team matters a tremendous amount because they're hiring the people, they're, they're hiring engineers, they're developing product, they're creating the, the business model. Uh, it's, there's tremendous pressure on them over time. I mean, leadership is always important, but it's especially important in the early, early stages. Over time, once the business really starts to take hold and the business model gets put into place and the financials start to come through, the, the, the need for a tremendous leadership team diminishes uh, slightly. Again, it's still important even for a company like Apple and Amazon. Uh, how, however, it's, it's, leadership teams can have an even more outsized um, uh, control over the returns of the company when the company is small. So you mentioned that you talked about this before, and and I think going back into the archives, our conversation about this company was back in February of 2020. So it was before we saw that huge revenue dip uh, due to to COVID and all the complications from the pandemic. Looking at it now, about eight months later, is this something that you are more confident in, less confident in, the same? How, how, How has time treated this business for you? Yeah, if anything, I'm I'm more confident. I mean, this is the one of the three that I am a uh, a shareholder of, and I was incredibly impressed that revenue only fell twenty percent 
last quarter. I mean, when you think about the macro operating environment and how many doctor's offices were closed to still capture 80% of their, of their previous revenue, that's pretty incredible. And again, importantly, they were still producing net income during this period. If they can survive that and have a clean balance sheet and produce net income, I'm more confident than I was seven months ago in this company's future. Makes sense to me. And, and the valuation isn't crazy, which I think is, is kind of interesting for a business that has the opportunity in front of it that it does. Yeah. If you believe analyst estimates, which you know, uh, you always take them with a grain of salt, but uh, the company is estimated to only show about 1% revenue growth this year. Hey, I'll take it given it's 2020, but rebound that to 60% growth uh, next year. And the uh, market watchers believe that the company's going to do about $1.86 in uh, earnings per share. If that's anywhere close to accurate, then that means that this stock is trading at about 30 times forward earnings. That is a really compelling uh, evaluation when considering the bottom line there was earnings, not sales. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, you own Semler. Um, Dermtech and Trupanion, are these stocks that are in your portfolio, on your watch list? You know, how are you categorizing them? Uh, of the three, Semler is the one that I, I own and um, I've just owned for a long time. I could easily see myself being a coming a shareholder of Trupanion and Dermtech. Dermtech is the highest risk of this this group by far because it's still pre-revenue. Its product hasn't been proven out, but it also has the highest potential to get 10x returns from here if it te- if technology works. I think that Trupanion is a company that I have just overlooked, and everything I see about this company suggests it's a compounding machine. To get that 10x return on the stock could take 10 years or maybe a little more, so it's not going to 10x overnight, but I think it's a company that is a pretty low-risk market beater. Yeah, and 10x over a decade is still a market-beating return. That's still a very impressive return, and I think that's worth keeping in mind. Um, when I look at these three, especially because we're talking about a space that I'm less familiar with, my, my general approach there is to focus a little bit more on certainty and a little bit less on speculation, just because I, I have a harder time wrapping my head around um, the kind of wellness, healthcare, and therapy space. And so if I'm going to power rank these, I think it's probably Trupanion, Semler, Dermtech, um, just just because the picture is a little bit clearer for those first two. I I think that that's c- completely fair. I would probably order them uh, in, in a similar way. But again, this is more of an idea show. And if you can put these, if you want these companies into your portfolio and you just allocate them accordingly, I think there's a spot in even conservative investors' portfolios for companies like these. I think folks are always happy to have an idea show with you, Brian. You are so good at bringing stocks that maybe aren't being talked about too much into the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today. Anytime, Dylan. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. Brian is at Brian Froldi. I am at Wiley Lewis. If you're looking for more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass, and thank you for listening. Until next time, fool on.